The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Side 2. Let me explain. Do you remember when we talked about Abbey Road? How the song, I Want You, She's So Heavy, goes on and on. A linen dirge at its best, driving you deeper and deeper with its dark repetition as Paul's fluttering bass line tries to escape the despair like starlight trying to evade the gravity of a black hole. But it doesn't. It doesn't make it out. Finally, that song collapses in on itself. It's the only way to end it. And then, miracle of miracles, you flip the record and you're out of that sinkhole, out of that abyss. You're hearing light guitar played with gentle fingers, and it's Here Comes the Sun, the George song. That is, in fact, the most popular Beatles song today, as measured by Spotify. Well... That's a little like how I feel today. We went from Arthur Schopenhauer, that miserable wretch, and we're flipping the side, and we have Rupert Holmes as our guest, and he is a sheer delight. He's written a darkly funny book about an academy designed to teach the art of murder. That sounds kind of brutish, but it's also tongue-in-cheek. It's murder as delivered up by an Edward Gorey or a Vincent Price, maybe. Rupert is someone you might be familiar with already, maybe without even being aware. He was behind the smash hit The Mystery of Edwin Drood, a very clever and popular and prize-winning Broadway musical which picked up Dickens where Dickens himself left off. And Rupert was behind one of the most memorable songs of my childhood, the achingly plaintive hymn, which I can still here echoing through my parents' station wagon, blazing out of AM radio as we crisscrossed the country on our summer vacation, on the school teacher's dilemma of traveling somewhere hotter in the summer as we made our way from Wisconsin down to Florida one July and Arizona one August. Him, 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 what's she gonna do about him? She's going to have to do without him or do without me. Me, me. No one gets to get it for free. What is it? What is it? Me? My love? Sex? I was years away from being in love, but I could feel what it was like to be in jealousy. And if that song doesn't ring a bell with you, one of Rupert's other songs might escape the the Pina Colada song. I was tired of my lady. We'd been together too long. You know this one, right? If you like Pina Coladas and getting caught in the rain, if you're not into yoga, if you have half a brain, if you like making love at midnight, that song, ah. Packs a whole narrative into four minutes and 36 seconds, including the guitar solo, and played 444 million times on Spotify, just on Spotify, and probably at least that many times on radio. Certainly, if you count up the number of individual listeners that that song has had, it must be in the trillions of listens. And here's me, excited about my measly little Two and a half million downloads a year here on this humble little pod. Well, in its defense, the humble little podcast doesn't have a supremely catchy melody, a soaring chorus, and the best O. Henry ending since O. Henry's 
magi gifted their heart-wrenching gifts to one another. Here comes the sun, people. You deserve it, those of you who descended into the inferno with me and Schopenhauer. Here comes the sun, Rupert Holmes, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. And yes, I'm reading Henry James again. That guy pulls me in like I'm a, a pulls me in his direction like I'm a little iron filing and he is a super magnet. We'll have to talk about him again soon. And also Gloria Naylor. Why is everyone emailing me about her? Time for an episode, I guess, which we will do soon. I hope not Thursday, though, because that's going to be Elizabeth Bishop with our friend and valiant repeat guest, Megan Marshall. She of the Pulitzer Prize winning fame. But today we have a real treat. This is a great conversation with a great spirit, a national treasure, I would say. I'm not sure if he's won a Pulitzer Prize, but he's won a couple of Tony Awards, I believe, at least two. And that has to count for something. Oh, and two Edgar Awards. For best mystery. He has a long list of achievements, actually. Musicals, adaptations, television series, songwriting, novels. This new series of his, these novels, it's going to be very popular, I think. Okay, we'll have more about that in a minute. I wanted to mention one more thing about the Pina Colada song. I don't know if I heard this song until I was in my 20s, but I remember when it hit me. I was in Morocco with my now wife, who was in the Peace Corps, and some other Peace Corps volunteers were visiting us. My wife was teaching at a university, so she was in more of a city, a larger city, and the volunteers, her friends, were in maternal child health, so they lived in very remote villages, helping young mothers, pregnant women, and young mothers deliver babies, and these friends would come into the city on their way to Rabat or wherever they were headed, and they'd stay with us for a night or two. Okay, that's all background. One night, somebody mentioned the Pina Colada song, and someone said, someone else said they'd never heard it. So a woman said, oh, really? It's about this, this guy who puts an ad in the paper. And, and then as she described the song, she started to cry. This was, She teared up. This was a woman not married herself, not someone who had suffered through a marriage that went dull or anything like that. She wasn't identifying. She had no personal connection to this story. And yet the song, the story in the song made her weep. How many songs do that? I mean, the music might make you cry. You might weep from the beauty of the melody or or the way the music moves you, or, or something you recall, for no one is there. For me, speaking of the Beatles, as I often do, Eleanor Rigby, I guess, is a sad song, but the, that's, the story in it has never made me cry. But this song, Escape, the Pina Colada song, made this hardened Peace Corps volunteer weep, just recalling what happens in that song. I never forgot that. And now here I am years later with the chance to talk to Rupert Holmes about his latest project. And of course, 
because this is the history of literature, I made sure to ask him all about his foray into the world of Charles Dickens and how he turned an unfinished novel of Dickens, Dickens's, into a Broadway musical that finishes the story in multiple different ways. A very inventive mind and a very pleasant conversationalist. Rupert Holmes, after this. Hey, grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Rupert Holmes, who has been an Edgar Award-winning novelist, a Tony Award-winning playwright, and a story songwriter. His song, Escape, the Pina Colada song, was the number one song in America for two decades. Using a bit of creative calendaring, it was atop the charts at the end of 1979 as it turned into 1980. But hey, my kids know the song by heart, and here we are, 43 years later. Rupert is here today to discuss his new book, Murder Your Employer, The McMaster's Guide to Homicide, Book One. Rupert Holmes, welcome to the History of Literature. It's delightful to be here. So, where did you grow up, and what kind of childhood did you have? The growing up part, I'm not sure about yet, but, um, <laughs> but I, I, was, I was born, much to my surprise, Jack, outside of Manchester, England, okay, which was not part of my plan. Uh, my father was an American GI uh, stationed in England during World War II. My mother was a wonderful, literate young woman who lived in Cheshire. He met her there. They were married. A year later, I was born. And for the first three years of my life, I grew up in a, a working class factory town called Northwich, not Norwich, but Northwich, England, which is about 25 miles south of Manchester. Uh -huh. And I still have vivid memories, a few moments there at age three. When I was three years old, my parents said, we're going to move to a place called Long Island. Mm. And I pictured palm trees and pirate treasure. <laughs> right. And then we landed in Levittown. And uh, <laughs> which was my, I must have had a British accent for about, you know, for my first few years of life. Yeah. And it evaporated in Levittown in probably 23 minutes. The first words that were said to me were, get off my property. <laughs> um, so uh, I grew up actually mainly, though, in uh, Rockland County, New York, near a town called Nyack, which is a dreamy Thornton Wilder-esque town on the Hudson River with a mountain. 
Yeah. And it was a wonderful place to grow up. There were a lot of artists, writers in, uh, living in the area. And there was always the presence of New York City in my life, but it was a place you went to, had an adventure in, and then you came home and life was calm and serene. Uh, right. So I've read that there were musicians in your family. I was wondering if there were storytellers or writers who were around you as well. Well, yes, in a, in a number of ways. My mother was a wonderful raconteur. She never mm. lost a British accent. She loved, when she read me books as a boy, she, she did all the voices. Oh, so, yeah. so, so when she read Winnie the Pooh and the House of Pooh Corner, Eeyore sounded like Gail Gordon from Marmus Brooks' TV show. Yep. Um, and anytime she read a book, she would do everything in a different voice. And she would also tell stories, things she had seen on TV. She would recount them to me. And she brought them to life, I think, probably better than if I had seen the show myself. Yeah. My father was a very gregarious, first of all, he was an amazing musician. He graduated from Juilliard at 17. He, in addition to being a great classical musician and conductor, he played lead alto in the big band era and then went off to have his own infantry division band during World War II. He was very outgoing. So I had, I had this kind of, my mother gave me, brought me up in a sense of British wit, of Oscar Wilde, of Noel Coward. Mm -hmm. um, and, and taught me that everything British was good. And my father was more like a Sid Caesar, Mel Brooks, outgoing guy who always had a story to tell and who loved to elaborate and enact things. Both of them set pen to paper now and then, but they weren't professional writers. Uh, my brother, my younger brother, who's a wonderful opera singer, has been known to help raise the comedy quotient on some of the Gilbert and Sullivan operettas that he performs by writing new material within them. And we recently co-authored a chapter about a musical we both grew up with, HMS Pinafore, in a book called 50 Key Stage Musicals, where they take all the important musicals that affected American theater. And our chapter is chapter two. Right. So he's a, he a writer in every sense of the word. Uh, right. But but it was a household of storytelling and movie watching and then talking about it. Yeah. Um, you know, so my mother would sit me down and say, now, this is a movie called Casablanca and you are to pay close attention to it. And I was about seven, you know, and, uh, and this was a wonderful upbringing. I'm, I owe them so much. Yeah. You say that they didn't often put pen to paper, but as you describe your parents, I can see both of their spirit in your new book. Which I don't want to talk about yet. Let's save that for a little bit. But I can see that kind of enthusiasm, the wit. I see Oscar Wilde in there. I see all of that coming out. You must feel like in some ways you owe them that debt to kind of have infused that spirit in you. Well, I have two narrators in my books, and one of them is a, a nice, decent American guy who's from Baltimore and, and talks like we do, or we did in the period that the story is in. But my other narrator, the primary na narrator, is the dean of the McMaster's Academy for Conservatories, rather, McMaster's Conservatory for the Applied Arts. And he's a feisty old British Oxford type. And so I get to indulge all that humor through him. Mm, yeah. Okay. So when did you know that you wanted to tell stories? Your song, the Pina Colada song, is famous as kind of a, a real storyteller song. But were you also writing novels and plays and, and fiction as, as you grew up? Or did that come after your success as a songwriter? Well, I was writing stories uh, as early as I was writing songs. Meaning yeah. I wrote my first song when I was six. 
And as soon as I could learn to write, I started trying to write stories. My life is about the fact that I, I always wanted to tell stories and I always wanted to compose music. And I tried to find ways to do both. Yeah, if I could. Right. And, um, but I wrote, started writing my first, I wrote a, I call them novels that because when they were written in pencil, they were about 40 pages long. <laughs> yeah. And that felt like a, that felt pretty yeah. much like a book. So I wrote a football story, a football novella in fourth grade called 10 Seconds to Go with an exclamation mark at the end of the title. <laughs> that was a thriller. Uh, I decided to adapt Tom Sawyer for children, not understanding that Tom Sawyer was for children. Uh, I, um, I wrote in high school, I, was, I fell in, in, into a swoon over the world of jazz of the big band era, and I wrote a, a jazz novel. My first attempt, I then waited some 30 years to write my second one for Random House Swing. And I was always writing, but when I got to college, I was studying music, but I was also writing pop songs. And and I submitted a couple of mystery stories to magazines, and I soon had a very fine collection of rejection slips. And I thought, well, the only way I guess I'm going to get my stories read or at least heard would be is if I write pops. I seem to be having some luck writing pop songs, yeah. maybe if all my songs were stories, maybe if they were all narratives or character studies, I can get into it that way. And then point of fact, that's exactly what happened. Right. And then it seems like a musical is kind of an obvious next step. And was it your idea to adapt the mystery of Edwin Drood into a musical? Or what was it about that Dickens novel that that drew you toward it? Or for musical theater purposes. It was my idea, completely solely. And the way I dealt with the fact that the novel was an unfinished novel was also an idea that I had to kind of sell mm. to the, to Joseph Papp, who was the head of the New York Shakespeare Festival and the public theater, and who would produce shows like A Chorus Line. And what happened was I, was, I, I used to travel a lot by train because I'm terrified of flying. And on any train in those days, going from L.A. to New York, you had to take reading matter because there was nothing else. There's, there, you know, you didn't have cell phones. There were no movies on the train, etc. So I grabbed a couple of books for the trip at the bookstore in Union Station. And I saw one that had fascinated me as a boy called The Mystery of Edmund Drew. And what had fascinated me about it was that my father explained to me, it's not a mystery like the mysteries you're used to reading and trying to write. This one never got finished. Mm. He died while he was writing it. Well, that fascinated me. Mm. I immediately turned to the last page in the book, and it was a, a, a broken off sentence with an M dash. And oh, I, pictured, wow. I pictured Dickens clutching his heart and falling over as he wrote it. <laughs> not quite the circumstances. So yeah. that had always kind of stuck in my head about Unfinished works always fascinate me. Puccini's Torandot, and uh, for years we wondered if we would ever find the Titanic, any Jack the Ripper, yeah. uh, anything where we don't know the answer because it leaves it completely open to speculation. So um, while I was taking this train ride from L.A. to New York, I had this copy of The Mystery of Edwin Drood. And as I read it, I thought, you know, this would make for a musical that the protagonist of it is the crazed choir master uh, of a, a cathedral city. He is madly in love with his music pupil. Uh, there are people who sing the songs of the spheres, and he himself goes off on these wild opium-infused dreams. Uh, this You could make a musical out of this, except for the fact that it has no ending. And so that was 1971, and I set out to write it, and it was it turned out to be my initial attempts to write it were very somber and dark and without any kind of 
any of the things I loved in musical theater. Mm. Uh, so I set it aside. And in 1983, Joe Pappas came to see me performing a, a comedy music act that I did at Dangerfields, the Friday Dangerfields. Yeah. He said, most of the songs you're doing up there are at theater because you're telling narrative stories and you're setting scenes and enacting the, the tunes in different characters. He said, have you ever thought about writing a musical? I said, stop me. And uh, immediately related to him, my idea for the mystery of Edwin Drew. And he said, well, how would you handle the ending, though? You're going to write an ending where Dickens didn't? I said, no, I think I could work it. It's going to be very, very complicated. But I think I can work it that when we get to the point where Dickens laid down his pen forever, the audience can vote on key questions regarding the plot. Mm. And we can come up with a different musical ending for this show every night. You could go nine nights in a row and see nine different murders confess for nine different reasons and find 36 combinations of lovers united. It was, to me, the height of theatricality because it's just the opposite of what celluloid is. Celluloid is a final fixed version. Casablanca is the same movie now that it was when it was first released. But here with theater, we have the opportunity to reshape the ending every evening in, uh, with the assistance of the audience. Yeah. And it, he bought into it, and uh, we did it first in Central Park at the Delacorte Theater. We were Shakespeare in the Park that, that summer. And on the first night we did it, he turned to me after the show, a wonderful opening night. The audience went mad. They, were, they knew something odd was happening here, something unusual. And Joe turned to me and said, well, after the first performance, he said, well, it, um, it works. Yeah, and I, I said, you went this far, not being sure <laughs> it, it would work. And it ended up winning the Tony Award for Best Musical, Best Book went to me, Best Score, Best Director, Best Actor in a Musical. So it was a wonderful start to writing for theater. It must have been fun for the actors, too, that it didn't have that, you know, is there in a long run, a kind of stasis can set in and, and maybe some boredom but if they're coming to the theater not knowing you know if the audience is going to choose the ending and they're not knowing exactly what version they're going to be running with it seems like it could keep things kind of lively for them as well that's a, a really astute point and you're and you're right on the money some of the actors were in the show for two years and it can get dull eight shows a week and they used to tell me i love it because when i go to the theater each night i have no idea if i'm getting the big number at the end of the show yeah, And on the nights that I don't, I try to figure out ways that I can get it the next night. Oh, right. I was wondering that if they were going to try to push the audience, you know, sort of emphasize the clues or or play up their role in a way that would kind of uh, steer the audience toward one of the choices. Um, yeah, we had a lot <laughs> of that. You know, there's this rumor that actors are uh, hams and sometimes eat scenery and <laughs> try to steal scenes from young children. Yeah. And, uh, and we had one period where for a month, the same actress kept getting voted murder. And we watched her performance very carefully and saw that each night she was slipping a meat cleaver into up her sleeve during the <laughs> dinner scene and making sure it reflected some uh, from the spotlight so that the audience caught it. Then there was another period where one of the actors in the show went a little nuts. And sure enough, she got voted the murder almost every night because the audience could sense this person's crazy. They could do it. Right. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of that going on. Now, how much were you inventing? I know Dickens, there's sort of a famous 
thing in, in Dickensian lore that Edgar Allan Poe used to read the early installments of his books and then guess all the endings and say, this is where he's headed. This is what he's doing. He's trying to trick us here, but we know who the real murderer is going to be there and that kind of thing. And I'm wondering, was Dickens basically keeping all of these possibilities open so that you just had to continue the threads that he started? Or did you have to kind of rearrange or or revise the Dickens, the part of the novel that he left behind in order to make this work? Well, there were a number of concerns. I had too many characters. The book was, mm. by the way, Dickensian, as you know, yeah. that's where the word comes from. Um, so I had to combine some characters. And in some cases, I had to ramp up some of the motives so that each mm. of mm-hmm. uh, that each of nine people could be a logical suspect. You have the problem with the novel that uh, Mr. Dickens was writing, that its villain seems pretty obvious. The murder seems pretty much who you would think it to be. Mm. My guess is that he was writing Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde 10 years ahead of Robert Louis Stevenson. And he was writing a story about, because there was no such term as schizophrenia. We didn't know about people having dual personalities and, in Dickens' time, or or if we did, we knew about it as a an organic thing, not not a medical condition. And so I had to find a way to make there be eight least likely suspects as well. And so I had to go back into Dickens' stories and his various mentionings of their pasts, and sometimes ratchet some of that up to give each of them their own logical reason. I mean, the woman who was the object of his unwanted affection, I had to really kind of work it to get let her have a mad scene so that you can buy into the idea that she uh, murdered the young man she's engaged to. In some cases, I had to plant a couple of mistaken identity clues. So so I, I, I took most everything from Dickens, what he had laid down, but I, in some t- cases, I had to put some additional stress on certain aspects of his story. Mm. Okay. So let's turn to writing novels as the form of storytelling. Do you ever find yourself wishing that you could insert melodies into your novels? Is there something you, you know, you have such a, a gift for writing songs. Do you do you miss that when you're writing novels or are you happy to just swim in the novel's ocean, so to speak? Well, there is a wonderful experience that you can have. It's a rare experience as a writer. Uh, for example, I, I wrote a TV series called Remember When. I wrote 56 episodes of a period TV series on uh, AMC, on the AMC network set in 1939 at an old radio station. And I was not only the creator of the show and the screenwriter, but I was also the composer for the show. And so I had this wonderful period for four years where I would write a speech for one of the characters. And as I wrote it, I would know exactly where I would bring in the strings to add to the emotion in the speech. Mm. I knew where I would need some kind of a musical rim shot, you know, or some kind of a drum accent to make a joke land even better. Yeah. So that was my, basically my one chance to write music for my prose. And I did it very merrily for four years. Uh, I, I have to tell you, I would love to take an audio book of, say, Murder Your Employer yeah. and convince someone to let me write an underscore for it. Oh, Doesn't mean yeah. it, would, it wouldn't be wall to wall music. But, but I mean, I once watched North by Northwest, which has a brilliant underscore by mm-hmm. Bernard. And they came out with a DVD where you could turn off the music, but keep the dialogue. And I did that. And boy, is that a different movie without Bernard Herman's incredible romps with the orchestra throughout it. 
yeah. this suspense. I, I can't imagine what Psycho would be like without, again, Bernard Herrmann's incredible score. So it would be a wonderful thing if an audiobook company would let me take the audiobook. We're doing one right now with the noted Simon Dance, award-winning fellow, doing the voice of the narrator and the Dean Harbinger, Harold, the dean of the school. And uh, Neil Patrick Harris is doing the voice of the principal protagonist, Cliff Iverson. And boy, if I could just get them to let me go into a, a soundstage and, and record a score for that, that would be some treat. Oh, okay, well, let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back and we'll hear all about this new book by our guest, Rupert Holmes. Okay, we are talking with Rupert Holmes and his book, Murder Your Employer, The McMaster's Guide to Homicide, book one. I have to say, I thought the idea for this book is just brilliant, and the execution, no pun intended, <laughs> is uh, very well done. So why don't we start, I don't know if you want to just describe the book or if we should just start with some questions. I wanted to ask you about the institution of the McMaster's Conservatory for the Applied Arts. What would you like to know about it, other than the fact that no one is supposed to know about it? Yeah. So who attends it? Oh, who attends it? Um, just sincere, dedicated individuals <laughs> who fervently wish for someone who is the bane of their existence to uh, be put out of existence. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, they don't take this goal uh, lightly. I mean, it's really stressed that murder is a life-changing event, not the least for one's victim. And it's important that um, any victim, although we uh, prefer the term executive, meet the specifications of the four inquiries, which are basically the, the litmus test for whether this murder can be condoned. And the, the first is, is this murder necessary? Mm. Because uh, if, for example, uh, you want your boss's job, your employer's job, do you have to murder him when you could perhaps marry his offspring? and get the job by nepotism. Um, uh, if, if to do so, to commit murder when you can achieve it, your goals by other means is uh, truly, literally overkill. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this, the second, the second uh, rule is, uh, have you given uh, your murderer every chance to exonerate themselves, to redeem themselves, to change from whatever they're doing that makes them the the ruin of your life. Because uh, if you've given them every chance to change and they refuse to take the bait, then you can have a clear conscience because when someone makes themselves unbearable to you and to the world, then their death is involuntary suicide. <laughs> Three, the big question is, who will mourn this person? Who will feel the loss if you do what you want to do? And if the answer comes there, none and more power to you especially if you're committing an electrocution. And then uh, finally is, uh, will the world be better for this person's absence? And that really is a key question. And mm. all the people at McMaster's, all the ethical people, that is, follow those rules. And if you can't answer them the correct way, as I just implied, then really McMaster's will have no time for you. Mm. Right. Okay. So <laughs> I've heard this described as a Hogwarts for murder. Do you accept that comparison? Does that give the readers a good sense of what kind of world they're entering into? Well, sort of yes and no. Yeah. Um, both books, both series offer um, unique environments, 
uh, where you can definitely escape from the realities of life. Uh, McMaster's, the, the main thing about it is it's a place that I would love to spend a month at just a, as a retreat. It's it's a fabulous place, luxurious accommodations. Ah, the cuisine yeah. has a secret three-star rating in the Michelin Guide. <laughs> um, and it's just, and it's idyllic, laid out like an, uh, an English village with wonderful shops and a beautiful lake and um, interesting forest, which all play in the story. There's actually a map of the entire McMaster's campus that comes on the inside cover of the hardcover edition. So it's a wonderful escape, just as uh, Hogwarts can be. But there's huge differences. I mean, Harry Potter is is pure fantasy. Mm. Uh, you know, it's a lives in the same realm as Dungeons and Dragons and The Hobbit. Yeah. Also, its protagonists are 10 and 11 years old, whereas the students at McMaster's are all adults ranging from early 20s to lively 90s. Right. And they come from all parts of the world. And to believe in Hogwarts, you know, you have to believe in magic and witches. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Sorcerer spells and flying broomsticks, for that matter. To believe in McMaster's, all you need to believe in is that there are people on this earth that some of us would love to see absent, and that there are some gorgeous, idyllic campuses and retreats around the world supported in part by generous endowments from their most successful graduates. McMaster's is a world that, uh, other than its completely fantastic premise, it's a world that really could exist, if you don't mind risking a head-on collision with the law. Mm. It's... uh, there's, you know, you have a there's a real life Harvard School of Law, a Columbia School of Medicine, a Yale School of Drama. McMaster's is a kind of Mount Holyoke of manslaughter. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah. So it also the second half of each book, the students leave McMaster's and go out into the very real world to apply their newly acquired oh, skills. Yeah. Right. Right. So you, so you go from this very dreamy, dreamlike, I should say, uh, environment where such things as the nicer and more genteel aspects of murder can seem quite the subject for a polite conversation around afternoon tea or in the pub on the campus of Big Masters, the skulking wolf. But suddenly you're in the real world where there's a real law and order and real police, and they don't think it's such a charming idea. And you are now up against the enemy. So it's a little bit, I guess, like being a spy and being parachuted into an enemy country and having to palm yourself off as one of the locals, you're suddenly, uh, the, our characters end up in three diff- very different locations. One is Bardiva, Doria May. She returns to the Hollywood film studio where her career is being snuffed out by the studio head. And it's, of course, her goal to snuff him out. Mm. Our staunch hero, uh, Cliff Iverson, uh, he goes back to the job where he's virtually a rocket scientist and he's trying to kill the man above him at this uh, aviation enterprise who is responsible for the death of the woman he loved and is also creating an airplane that is a risk to everyday people. And then uh, our third character, Gemma Lindley, returns to the Northumberland Hospital in England where uh, she's being blackmailed by her superior at work, not superior only in terms of rank, and her life is being ruined by that person. And so they're all out there in the real world dealing with real people who many of whom would protest that I don't want you killing me. Right. So it's it becomes it becomes suspenseful. There's there are risks and fears, high stakes at, at McMaster's while you're on campus. Uh, you have to keep in mind that one of the scarier aspects of McMaster's is that if you fail to s- successfully achieve your thesis, which is another word for your mission to kill this person, 
that you're after, uh, you yourself will be have to be eliminated because you know about the existence of the conservative. <laughs> so it's high stakes for everyone. It's high stakes for the person who's the target. It's high stakes for the murderer because they may end up being the victim themselves. And it's high stakes for everyone around them because a lot of people don't know what they're up to. So although it's a, the book is, I think uh, you would ha have to say a great deal of fun, but um, it's a little bit like, it's entertaining. And I think it's, I've been told it's very humorous, but it would be like saying when Cary Grant is hanging off Lincoln's nose at Mount Rushmore yeah. uh, and hanging onto his ankle is even Marie Saint and Martin Landau comes to step on his hand, which is the only thing keeping them from falling off the side of Mount Rushmore. Are we now seeing a light comedy or are we in uh, perilous circumstances? Right, right. So it's that kind of story. And and, and I think all those ent entities are how it's uh, really nothing like Hogwarts. Yeah. One of the things I was thinking of is just from a storytelling perspective is the way a lot of the James Bond or maybe all the James Bond films are constructed where there's that scene where he meets with Q and Q is giving him, you know, the gadgets and is saying like, here's the exploding pen or here's the, the, you know, the new thing we developed for your car and that kind of thing. And as a, as a viewer, you think, oh, I bet I'm going to get to see that in action and we're going to see if this really works the way Q thought it would and the way Bond is, you know, he's kind of only half paying attention at the time or he's not, you know, maybe such a good student at the time. And it sounds like you're setting up these books is we get to see the the student taking a class in poisons or, or uh, you know, some other form of one of the applied arts. And then we get to see that play out in the real world as they try to actually put that into practice. Well, that's exactly right, Jack. It's the joy of first inventing a what you hope will be a perfect murder and then finding a way that to turn the at least part of the skill of that murder becoming a course that you take at McMaster's. And when you read about the student taking the course, and it, we deal with a lot of students, it's not just those three, you know that you're setting the stage for when this skill will pay off. And the Q analogy is perfect. Uh, it's just right on the money. Mm. So as a series, are you envisioning this as, uh, is there an overarching narrative? Is there something about the faculty that we see develop? Are they sort of connected? Or do you have in mind, this is just a perfect vehicle for a lot of really entertaining stories, and we can just keep going back to this uh, narrative. There doesn't have to be a kind of development. We'll just put in new characters who are trying to achieve new things. Um, there is a, definitely an overarching storyline, and most of the characters you meet in volume one, at least the ones who aren't possible victims, are already populating the second volume. Some of our principles remain principles in volume two, and, and they become... Uh, I don't want to give away too much, but they mm -hmm. become they become something beyond students and more a part of the McMaster's world. And there is a an end goal for for one character in particular. Uh, but at the same time, I do want to say that you're told from the outset in the novel that of the three people we focus on uh, in in detail, at least one will not succeed in their effort. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's probably going to be a rule because it keeps the suspense. If you just think that people are going to learn the skill and kill and be and everyone lives happily, everyone except the victim lives happily after, uh, that might take some of the suspense out of it. And, and the knowledge that 
success is not a guarantee, even with the McMaster's education, is a part of the story. But the characters are recurring and uh, and they grow and learn and relationships form. So, yeah, this is I, I will say that it would be important for people to read the series in the order that I write them, mm. even though each book, each book is intended to be self-contained and, and you could read it and enjoy it. If you read volume three first, you might learn too much about the fate of someone in volume one. So I'm signed to write certainly more than this first volume. And um, hopefully people will read them in the order I wrote them. Mm. Now, you mentioned an audiobook and having in mind kind of an underscore for it. I would guess these books would be headed for the screen as well, either uh, in the movies or or maybe these days on a streaming service or something. But would you imagine writing songs to go along with the narrative, or would that be too distracting to have the characters actually singing? And I'm, I'm guessing you could at least imagine a soundtrack that you could work on for it. Well, <laughs> I think that I've looked into, you know, sometimes when I do book appearances, I perform a little too. I'll do a song or two. And I thought, how can I, um, how can I work that into this? Uh, because my second novel, uh, I actually had, it was set in the Big Band era, and I had songs mentioned in the course of the novel that I could perform. Mm. And they weren't, they were original songs, original to the novel. I, I think there's a way to turn music into a murder weapon. I certainly think that I know a way I could make the pina colada song into a lethal weapon and i'm i'm working on that i wouldn't, be too, I wouldn't want to be too distracting though i mean um yeah. we do discuss for example uh in, in an early chapter there's a discussion of the use of both radio and phonographs to cover up a murder and they stress the fact that radio is a, a phonograph record is uh it, by the way this is a period novel so i'm not this was in an era where people had still had turntables and vinyl albums yeah and uh, the students are taught, don't rely on the radio because they could, if you're counting that radio to cover up the sound of uh, uh, strangling someone in the bathtub, um, they could say, now we interrupt this for an important announcement or here's a moment of silence in honor mm. of the you know, and you might be heard. Whereas if you use a phonograph, you can be pretty sure of continuous music for a certain period of time. And by the way, should there be some problem, you can always drop the phonograph into the bathtub and electrocute the target that you're after too. So there, there are ways that music has applications in the murdering of loathsome human beings. So I'll look into that, Jack. I'll yeah. look into it. <laughs> okay. My last question is, you know, so many of your works have involved mysteries and crime. And I'm wondering if this is, are you drawn to the psychology and the motives of criminals? Or are you coming at this from a storyteller's interest in plots and suspense and how do I keep a reader guessing and, and so on? If, if you had to choose one or the other, would you lean toward one or the other? Or would you say you come at it from both perspectives? Well, you know, I think there's a little bit of both in play. Mm -hmm. but, but most of the great mysteries that I can think of offhand are usually incredible romances as well. Mm. One of the things that Agatha Christie never gets credit for is that she was a, an incredible romantic writer. Now, a lot of the, her best books are about people who are saddled with a relationship that they desperately want to be out of, or someone that they love and would hope to kill for. Even something as hard-boiled as The Postman Always Rings Twice is a passionate love story uh, where murder takes on an almost sexual component in the story. So... So much of what Christie writes is about 
people's yearnings. It's not all just about getting someone's money. It's not a Perry Mason. Mm. It's about human feelings and restlessness and just trying to needing to change things in a way so radical that you become a person that you never thought you could be. Um, so that to me makes any mystery story, murder story about the darker side of all the emotions that we are capable of feeling. A lot of people, I certainly am one, feel that Charles Dickens in writing the mystery of Edwin Drood and painting a portrait of a man who was a choir master during the day and everyone looked on as a a genteel and gracious soul and a godly soul. And at night he would go off to London and engage in open dreams and and imagine himself strangling his so-called beloved nephew so that he could win the love of the fair Rosebud. So that, that dual personality I think Dickens was writing a little bit about himself. He was considered, and rightly so, one of the most humane and democratic writers of all time. He, people thought he was a man of good deeds, and, and yet he had a passionate love with a, a mistress he kept in London while he lived in Rochester. And he used opium himself to get through pain that he suffered from a train accident. He drank two bottles of champagne at each reading. These are natural things uh, that lie in mystery stories. One of the beauties of mysteries is that someone in a mystery story is not what they seem. Mm. At least one person is pretending to be something they aren't. Oh, gee, Mr. Chan, how can we help you solve this mystery? I'll do anything to get, and he's the killer, of course. So mysteries are, they're dark, but they're human. And I think people who write mysteries and who read mysteries are actually very nice people. And they get the thrill of, of society being thrown into disorder with a, a murder. And then the great detective coming and seeing what we cannot see and making sense of it and, and restoring law and order and justice. I think that's a, a very civilized way to kind of get the thrill of doing a crazy thing, an impulsive thing, and yet doing it in a safe way. Just as we love roller coasters, because on that first fall, we all scream and we sort of scream and then laugh because it feels like we're going to die. But if all goes well, the roller coaster had all that planned and we don't die. I mean, if you were just falling off that roller coaster and you weren't in a car and the out angle hadn't been calculated, you probably wouldn't survive. And your body can feel I'm in terrible danger. And you're laughing because you think, no, I'm not. I'm just getting as close to that as I can possibly get. Uh, skydiving, probably the same thing. You think, were it not for me knowing I have a parachute on my back and a backup, this would be a very bad situation to be in. And that's what I think mysteries do. They let us live vicarious adventures. And, and this is all vicarious adventure, starting from the ridiculous premise, which I am true to as loyally as I can be, that it is a perfectly acceptable thing to learn to murder someone who deserves their fate. <laughs> Rupert Holmes, this has been a delight. Thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. My pleasure. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Rupert Holmes. Do go and check out his book, available in bookstores everywhere, and hopefully on the screen, too, soon enough. But don't wait for that. Read the book. It is a delight. It's called Murder Your Employer, The McMaster's Guide to Homicide, available in bookstores everywhere. We have Nabokov Noir coming up soon, and the gentleman spy who was in the Oscar Wilde universe, including at his trial, except he was able to pull enough strings to keep his name out of the courtroom. He appeared just as a mystery figure. 
We'll hear his story with Laura Lee, our old friend and previous guest here on the History of Literature. And the woman who wrote a biography of The Wife of Bath will be here. Our producer, our producer Emma, texted me to say, I wish she had been my professor when she was listening to that conversation. Ah, yes, who doesn't? Our guest, that is, not the wife of Bath. <laughs> Although, I suppose there could be worse people to have as your prof than the good old wife of Bath. Episode 500 is getting closer, people. I'm hoping to have something good cooked up for you on that day so we can feast together in celebration of all this damn literature we're getting through. I'm kidding. It's been a joy having you here with me on this journey. 500 episodes in and out of a pandemic, in and out of three presidencies here in the States. When we began this humble little podcast, Joe Biden was just a vice president. Donald Trump was a celebrity who sometimes talked about getting into politics. And the word Brexit was known only as the word that came out of my mouth when I tried to say breakfast before I had my coffee. That's how long ago that was. Hey, you you kids. <laughs> That's me in the morning. Hey, especially when the kids were little. Hey, hey, you, you, you kids. I can't think of your names right now. Big one and little one. Want some Brexit? A lot has changed, but at least one thing hasn't. I'm still Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>